are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. I'm on location once again. I'm not at my home on the west coast of the United States. I'm at my mother and father-in-law's home on the west coast of Sweden. And I'm very pleased that you could join me. I hope that I don't look too tired in my eyes because we've been traveling for the last, I don't know how many hours, uh, all through the night from the west coast of the United States over here to Sweden through uh, San Francisco first and then through uh, Frankfurt, Germany. And it's such a pleasure for me to come and do our weekly question and answer time for you from here. I enjoy it whenever I can do it on the road, and it's been a lot of travel for me this year. And so doing the live Q&A on location, so to speak, is a big, big plus. So, so pleased you could join me today, and I can prove to you that I'm in Sweden. Here we go. There's a Swedish flag right there. Doesn't that prove it? It's right here on the table where I'm sitting, out in the back garden of my uh, mother and father-in-law's home here on the west coast of Sweden. So, Uh, Anyway, I've got something very important before we get into our lead question today. Today, kind of as a surprise thing, we haven't given much forward notice of this, but we're doing a giveaway here on today's question and answer time. And not just any giveaway, we're actually going to give away three items, three of the same thing. We have a very special Enduring Word coffee mug. Uh, It's great. It's ceramic mug with a little nice uh, cork bottom, has Enduring Word logo on it. And uh, to bless a few of our viewers, we're hosting a giveaway today. And this mug, we're going to give away three of these to three different viewers. And you can enter into this contest. But here's a couple of things. What you got to do is you got to respond in the side chat. Uh, You got to give us your location, country, state, city. Don't put your street address in there, please. Um, But enter into the live chat uh, where you're viewing us from. And um, we hope that you've already subscribed to the channel. We hope you're already clicking notifications. But if you haven't, it'd be great if you do that. But what we're going to do is from everybody that submits to us, uh, they leave both a comment and they tell us where they're listening from. We're going to enter in their name into this program or into a random drawing. And at the end of our program today, about 10 minutes Before the end, we're going to do a random drawing for three people. Now, here's what you got to do. You also have to remain with the program until the very end because that's the only way that we're going to be able to get your contact information. So at the end of the program, I'm going to announce we've got three winners, you know, so-and-so from so-and-so, so-and-so from so-and-so. We'll list our three winners. Uh, We'll let you know when the entries are closed. Uh, again, about 10 minutes before, we'll announce the winners to the at the end, but you have to stay with us to the end to know whether or not you've won, and then you've got to be able to give us your contact information, and uh, we will uh, figure out how to get your mug to you. So there's three of these that we're going to give away today's program, and uh, if you want the official rules, it's posted in the video description. So, fun thing that we're going to do today. I tell our team, we should do more of these. We should do more and more giveaways because we like doing them. And if I could just say something about this. Look, friends, I'll be straightforward. I don't ever think that we're going to be selling Enduring Word merchandise. I'm just not into that. 
But we love to do special things like this for people who are part of our Enduring Word family. And uh, if you'd like to join in with that, well, maybe you'll win in today's contest. Okay, uh, let's get over to our lead question for today. And our lead question for today is centered on this thought, help, my church is splitting. And it's a question that comes from Johan. Let me ask Johan's question or read Johan's question to you. Um, He says, uh, uh, quoting from Johan here, an assistant pastor from our church is leaving to start a new church close by. I don't know all the reasons why, but it feels really awkward at our church. It seems like there's going to be a church split. And I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. What are your thoughts? Well, Johan, um, listen, uh, I would say that for any person, especially any pastor who's been around for any amount of time, they know what it's like to have something of a split, something of a division in a church family, where it seems like... um, there's some people who leave the church, perhaps they leave with, uh, they're disgruntled or whatever. They're, they're not happy with how things were at the church and not happy in a serious enough way that they, um, that they decide that they are going to leave. Th- then there's other um, situations where it- it's a very happy thing. There's a splitting or a division that's done because a church just senses that there's more ministry that can be done by two congregations rather than one. I'd like to think of it like this. Look, I I don't know a lot about science. I mean, I I studied biology, of course, uh, when I could as a a student in high school and such. But of course, we, we learned about cell division. We learned about how cells divide and multiply. And if you just have that picture in your mind, you know, here you got the cell and then it just begins and then it sort of splits into two. If you keep that in mind about a cell dividing or splitting and multiplying, well, if a healthy cell splits, it can make two healthy, growing, living cells. And obviously that's the best case scenario, isn't it? That a healthy congregation in some way divides or splits And listen, uh, sometimes that splitting or dividing can be painful at the moment. I wonder if that cell wouldn't say, ouch, when it's happening. But, you know, you just kind of have this idea of a a cell dividing. And if it's a healthy cell, then uh, it's going to be good. It's going to be something that's beneficial. But if a cell is diseased or malfunctioning in some way, then that disease or malfunction can be spread through the split itself. And and sometimes you could say that there's a case where there's a relatively healthy cell has some problem or damage and that particular thing gets split off. Well, listen, those who have been in ministry or part of pastoral ministry for any amount of time, you're familiar with these kinds of things that might be applied to local congregations. And I would just say this, whether or not a split is good or bad, because I've seen both. I've seen splits that end up being a tremendous blessing for the community, where instead of one church, one congregation that's growing and thriving and really doing good in the community, now you have two churches. Sometimes the the, the impact of the ministry is exponential between them. And uh, whatever awkwardness there might be at the beginning, it's soon in the rearview mirror, and you just got two ministries that are in friendly cooperation and serving the Lord together. Uh, I've seen that, but then also, look, I've also seen 
um, I thank the Lord that I haven't really been par- part of them or, or personal experience, but I've seen from a distance some really ugly, terrible church splits and divisions where actually um, th- there was something bad and misformed in both congregations, both the congregation that remained and then the congregation that went off and, and started anew. Whether a split is good or bad usually depends on the heart and the actions of those involved. Listen, I won't say that it's only the heart because there's sometimes people who have a fairly good heart, but they're really unwise or unthoughtful in their actions and end up causing a lot of trouble, a lot of difficulty. It it, it can be done in the spirit. It can be done in the flesh. Now, I, I will say this, that it's often wrong before God and unethical to steal people from an existing congregation and then to start a competing church. Now, look, I, I, if I were to say that or write that out, I would put steal people in quotation marks because in a sense, the sheep of God's pasture, they can't be stolen because they don't belong to any man. They don't belong to any one group of elders. They belong to God. And so there's a sense in which sheep really can't be stolen in that sense. But but there is definitely an unethical way of drawing a congregation to oneself. There's an unethical way of building a work, uh, and that's to be avoided. Uh, That unethical way often uses, um, I don't know, sneaky, it uses um, underhanded tactics and methods. It uses sort of uh, making people feel dissatisfied with where they're at and then drawing them after the self. It's not sort of a natural reordering when a congregation may split, but it's it's sort of just this unethical thing. I like the attitude of Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, where Paul said that he was determined that he would not build on another man's foundation. It's good to have that heart in planting a church, that you're just going to be steadfast and say, look, whatever we do here, we're going to work very hard to not build on anybody else's foundation. And times of conflict or transition at a church's, You need to always remember that any time of conflict or transition, it's always a time when, number one, God wants to do his work through his people to bring himself glory. Isn't that obvious? God is always looking uh, for an arena for willing vessels among his people to do a great work. Uh, Times of transition, even conflict at a church, can be a time when God ends up really being glorified through people's Christ-like demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, But then secondly, um, we also need to be very grown up about this and realize that times of conflict or transition at a church are also times when Satan really wants to tear down the work of the church. Look, Satan is working for any opportunity he can find to sort of dismiss and push away the work of the Lord. So we need to be sensitive to that. This is what we should do. We should determine that God helping us, that we're going to be instruments to further God's work and purpose, which oftentimes can be measured by looking for the fruit of the Spirit 
and by looking for the nature of Jesus Christ in everything that we do. So, Johan, I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, again, these are just some of my thoughts on um, uh, church splits. Uh, listen, again, I, I've seen some church splits that end up being a wonderful blessing for a community and, and for the individual congregations involved. I've seen other ones that have sown the seeds of bitterness and distrust for years and years to come. And friends, just, it doesn't have to be that way, even if a congregation is going to uh, you know, uh, divide, so to speak, and, and reorganize under two congregations. Again, Johan, hope that's helpful for you. Thank you for your question. All right, uh, before I get to the questions in the live chat, there's two things I want to say. First of all, I want to announce again our giveaway. We've got these Enduring Word mugs, and we're going to give away three of them today. You can look for all the details in the show description today. It'll give you all the rules and regulations and all of that. But basically, what you need to do is you need to, you know, greet us in the chat. Of course, your screen name will appear. You need to let us know where you're coming from. We'd love it if you subscribed, if you clicked notifications, if you clicked a like. We love it when you do that, of course. Uh, but th that's not an absolute requirement for this. But you need to let us know where you're viewing us from. And again, I, I, it's obvious that this is for our live audience. If you're watching this later on by tape, sorry, the mugs have already been given away. And then here's the other thing you got to do. You got to hang on till the end of the program because it's only at the end of the program that uh, about 10 minutes in, we're going to cut off the new entries. Uh, our team will make a random selection. They have sort of this random generator thing. They'll randomly pick uh, three people, and I'll read those names. But when I read those names at the end, or we respond to you in the chat, you, you have to be around because we need contact information from you, uh, email, something like that, that you can contact us and give us your postal address so that the Enduring Word team can send these out to you. So I'm seeing a lot of people give their entries right now, telling us where they're viewing from. I'm so happy to hear it. And uh, it's wonderful to have a global Enduring Word family here. So even when today I'm here from Sweden, uh, bringing you today's program, here I am at 9.15 almost in the evening, and uh, we can be together here for that. All right, let me get to the questions down the live. Oh, that was one thing. Here's the second thing. I want to give a special greeting to our TWR360 audience. Our TWR360 audience, uh, TWR360 is celebrating its 10-year anniversary, and we're so pleased about it. So greetings there to our TWR360. And, okay, I don't often have guests, but here's two special guests here for our program. My mother and father-in-law, Gunnel Bergstrom and Nils Bergstrom. Hello, Gunnel. Say hi to hi everybody. Hi there. I just want to thank you, everyone, for prayers. It has been wonderful. I sure appreciate that. Thank you. Bye. Isn't that wonderful, Gono? These are the people who, are, who yeah, prayed for you. I and know. God really has and, answered and those here prayers. I am. Pretty, yes. Pretty good. Pretty well. <laughs> yes, you are. Yeah. Nils, and now to say hi to everybody. Hello. Hey, Nils, <laughs> hey. you wrote a book on fasting, and I was recommending it to people last week. They can get it on Amazon, can't they? Yes, yes. Yes, they can. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm, I'm glad you did. It's, uh, it's a tremendous gift that we have been given from God, and uh, everyone should 
Yes. Yeah, all of it. Yes. 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 It's uh, very nice. Wonderful. Uh, okay. Thank you, Nils. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Blessings to you. Okay, let's get on now with the questions here in the live chat. We get a question from our TWR360 audience from Moturi who asks, what are the dimensional spirits as per the book of Revelation? And I think what you mean, you're talking about here are the seven spirits. I think that's probably what you're talking about. In Revelation chapter one, verse four, it says, John, to the seven assemblies that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from God who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Okay, uh, I, I think what you're talking about here, Moturi, is what are the seven spirits that are before the throne of God? And I think probably the best connection with this is drawn to a passage in Isaiah. Let me move things around just a little bit. And I wanna get over here to my commentary. Excuse me while I look this up. Uh, believe it or not, I'm going to my own Bible commentary on EnduringWord.com because I know if I look up that reference in Revelation, it's going to give me the exact reference there. Revelation chapter 1 at verse 4, speaking about the seven spirits of God. Um, it's probably a reference back to Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2, where it describes seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. Here's the seven aspects in Isaiah 11 and 2. It talks about the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It isn't that there's seven separate spirits of God, but rather the spirit of the Lord has these seven characteristics. So again, you're gonna find that in Revelation chapter one, verse four, and I think the cross-reference back to that is Isaiah chapter 11, verse two. Here's the fascinating thing about the book of Revelation. There is no other book in the New Testament that quotes the Old Testament quite as much as the book of Revelation. There are hundreds of either quotations or allusions back to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And that's why one of the great keys to understanding and interpreting the book of Revelation well is to know your Old Testament very well. So I hope that's helpful for you. Thank you for that question, Moturi, from our TWR 360 audience, a Transworld Radio 360, celebrating their 10th anniversary and doing a great job out there. Okay, next question comes from WBL, who says, I'm confused. Is the James who wrote the book of James the same as James, the son of thunder, John's brother? Okay, WL, let me give you the quick answer. No, it's not the same James. Uh, there are several people named James in the New Testament, and there's a difference between the two. The James that was the Lord's brother was not one of the 12 disciples. Uh, if you remember, the, the sort of inner core of Jesus' disciples were Peter, James, and John. Well, the James that's listed there in Peter, James, and John of the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, uh, that was a different James. And that James was the first of the apostles to be martyred. What is that, Acts chapter seven, I believe, I'm just saying that off the top of my head. But the book of Acts describes the martyrdom of James, the disciple. The James that wrote the book of James and the James who came to leadership 
uh, very prominently, especially in the church of Jerusalem, that's a James who was um, uh, the brother of Jesus. Technically, you'd say the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, that's that particular James. Okay, so I hope that clears that up for you, W.L. You're talking about two different men with the same name in the uh, New Testament. Uh, Adonis asks this question. Uh, which New Testament books, if any, were originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, or any other non-Greek language, or were they all originally written in Greek? Okay, Adonis, look, I, I don't want to give anybody the idea that I'm like a specialist in this area, so I give you my opinion such as it is what it's worth. I haven't seen any compelling evidence that any of the New Testament books were originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, and then translated into Greek. Uh, Probably the the books that people try to make the best case for that for are Hebrews. There are some people who who think that Hebrews was a sermon originally delivered in Hebrew slash Aramaic, and that Luke translated it into Greek. Okay, maybe, but I haven't seen compelling evidence for that. Um, I would regard it as a possibility. And then... Uh, the other leading contender for that would be the Gospel of Matthew. There are people try to make the case that the Gospel of Matthew was originally written in Hebrew slash Aramaic, uh, but uh, was translated into Greek very early. To me, these are rather speculative theories. Uh, there's no real hard evidence for them. Interesting ideas, but I, I would be of the opinion that there's no compelling evidence interesting thoughts, but no compelling evidence to say uh, that any of the New Testament books were written in any other language than New Testament Greek or what we call Koine Greek, common Greek of the day that distinguishes it from classical Greek. Thank you for that question there, Adonis. Next question comes from Holly, who asks, was the purification dispute between John the Baptist's disciples and the Jews based on Numbers 19, if so, were Jesus and John's disciples baptizing in the name of Jesus at this point? Okay, Holly, you have a great question there, and I'm going to check this out in my commentary because I believe the reference that you're talking about is in John chapter 4, if I remember, where it talks about the baptizing work of Jesus. No, maybe it's at the very end of chapter three, is it? Let me look. I don't want to get this wrong. Um, Yes, here we go. It's at the end of John chapter three, where we read um, at verse 25, John chapter three. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom have you testified? Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Now look, Holly, let me just be straightforward. I don't think the text really reveals to us the precise nature of this dispute. You see, obviously, John's baptism had a significant element of personal purification. Now, the Jews were well accustomed to ritual baths or bathing. They would call it a mikvah. 
uh, used for ritual purification. But John's baptism took the principle of the mikvah and it turned it up to 11. It amplified it because it included a, a, a direct personal recognition of a person's sinfulness, which the mikvah was more just kind of a general ceremonial thing. Isn't it true that it's one thing for us to say, well, I'm a sinner in general. Um, yes, I am. I'm a sinner in general. But it's another thing for me to like call out specific sins and say, listen, I confess and repent of this sin. And it seems that John's baptism was much more along that second lines. And it, it may be that that's what the uh, Jewish people who were objecting to John's baptism, what they were focused upon. And so it seems like that's the nature of the dispute there. Um, were Jesus and John's disciples baptizing in the name of Jesus at that point? No, I don't believe so. Uh, because uh, I don't believe that they started baptizing in the name of Jesus until the establishment of the church. Uh, obviously, there's a strong link between John's baptism and what we would call Christian baptism, but at the same time, they're not the same thing. They are distinct things in themselves. So, Holly, I hope that answers. You can look up my commentary there at John chapter 3 for a little more insight or to get a little more on paper what I'm talking about. Uh, next question comes from John. Hey, John Weisner. Hi from Sweden. Blessings to you, brother. Uh, John's an old friend. Uh, hi, Pastor Dave. I hear a lot Jesus is coming back, but isn't it we, the church that are going up first before Jesus comes back to earth? Thank you. God bless. Well, John, that's true. I'm, I mean, in my understanding, look, I always give this caveat whenever I'm talking about the end times or eschatology or how things are going to you know, sort themselves out in the very end times, that, that Christians who love the Lord and honor the Bible come to different perspectives about these things. And that's fine. Um, but in my understanding of God's kind of prophetic scenario, yes, Jesus is going to come, but he's going to come for the church before he comes in glory back returning to the world. But John, both of those are aspects of Jesus's coming. And so when we say, come Lord Jesus, we mean come for your church. We mean come in glory back to the world. We're kind of bringing it all into one big picture there. That's kind of the idea. Quick call out, I'll do this again. Today, we're giving away three Enduring Word mugs. Friends, you can't buy this merchandise. We don't sell it. We don't, look, we, we just don't, I, I don't wanna get involved in that and just selling Enduring Word merch. Sorry, but we're, we'll give it away. Um, and so we're gonna give away three of these today. Uh, the rules are in the details to this video. Basically, you got to leave a comment letting us know uh, your name, at least your first name. That's fine. Just You don't have to leave your second name. Your, your first name, your given name, and then as well where you're from, city, county. Don't give us your address. Uh, and then we're going to do a random drawing. We're going to cut off entries about 10 minutes before the end. We're going to do a random drawing and pick out three names and send enduring word mugs to those three names. So, welcome. Uh, next question comes from Adonis. Adonis asks, <clears throat> how can we know when to reckon biblical dates, including prophetical dates, according to a 360-day calendar versus the alternative? What is the name of the correct biblical calendar? Well, Adonis, I, I don't know 
I, I'm sure people have given that 360-day calendar sort of a, a, uh, a technical name. But the 360-day calendar is something that seems common in the ancient world. And it seems uh, that that's the, the sort of calendar that God uses. And I, I would say this, Adonis, it's relevant when days are relevant. Sometimes God is speaking in terms of epochs and years and, and broader periods. But when it comes down to days and that, I think that there's places where the 360-day calendar uh, should be used in sort of understanding things prophetically. Of course, the great place where this has been enacted or, or, or relied upon is in the calculations of Sir Robert Anderson in his understanding of the um, uh, his understanding of the seventy weeks of Daniel, and how, according to his calculations, that that was fulfilled to the day when Jesus entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, presenting himself as Messiah the Prince to Israel. Uh, look, th- there's controversy around Sir Robert Anderson's chronology and calculations and such. But I appreciate the word from John Walvoord, who's a very respected commentator on Revelation. He says, uh, Anderson's calculations have never been categorically disproved. And uh, I I would tend to agree with that. And um, I I think there's merit to that and looking to that. So, Adonis, I don't have a hard and fast question, but when you're getting down to things that try to measure the exact day of such things, then I think it's helpful to use what some people call a prophetic year, a prophetic calendar, and that's 360 years. There are some people who believe that at one time, the world had a 360-day calendar for a year. Um, and then something happened. Look, there's all sorts of speculation of this, and there's no point in getting into it. Emmanuel Vilikovsky's work, Worlds of Collision, uh, speculated that maybe it was the near passing of a comet, some other thing leading to a cataclysm on Earth that changed the Earth's orbit ever so slightly, but from a 360-day year to a 364 and a quarter year, uh, whatever. Those things are sort of beyond my pay grade right here, but people have discussed and done research into these things before. Okay, next question comes from Barbara, who asks, uh, Pastor David, in Ezekiel, it seems that a new temple will be built and sacrificial system initiated. Since Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sin, why would this happen? Is this symbolic? Why? Thank you. Oh, Barbara, such a great question. And listen, there's some friends that I have, and they kind of love to debate the whole Ezekiel's temple and what it means and what is it significant. Barbara, I'll give, you're asking me the question. I don't see anybody else around me right here. It's just me on the back porch of my uh, in-laws place on the west coast of Sweden. So since I'm the only one here, I don't see another human being in sight, uh, I'm going to give you my take on this, Barbara. And and Barbara, I I would just say that um, Ezekiel's temple, that's that temple described in some detail in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. That temple is real. It's literal. It's actual building that will be built. And I believe it'll be built during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ over this earth. And I think that it will be built as a memorial, a memorial recognizing God's work in the past. 
Um, People will be called to remember the great things that God did in the past and how God worked in redemptive history. Barbara, I I don't know if you've ever been to one of these places where you go and it's a historical park and they're reenacting history. You know, Colonial Williamsburg in the United States. And there they are, they're dressed in period. There's a woman churning butter and there's a man making things out of wood with old tools. And there's the blacksmith doing his work. And you can say, well, what are they even doing? Well, they're showing you what life was like at an earlier time. I believe that that will be a large part of Ezekiel's temple. It'll be a memorial to show what God did in that great stage of uh, redemptive history and to show it to the people on earth during the millennium to teach them about God's works in the past. It's very important to say that in my understanding of this, the sacrifices offered at the temple, Ezekiel's temple, the temple described in Ezekiel chapter 44, they are not for atonement. The perfect work of Jesus forever satisfied any work of atonement. They're not to atone for sin, uh, but they can have value in memorial and they can also have value in a, dedicata- in, a, in a dedication sense. I wanted to use the word dedicatory, but that's not even a word, is it? Sometimes I make up words and I'm thinking about things, but look, look even Paul offered sacrifices at the temple after he was a believer, after he was an apostle, recognizing, and and we see this from the book of Acts, that there was a recognition that uh, there were some aspects of the sacrificial system that were still useful even to Christian believers under the new covenant as expressions of devotion and commitment to God, such as the sacrifices surrounding a Nazarite vow that we see taking place in the book of Acts. So I believe all that flows according to that, Barbara. Um, I believe one of the big reasons I believe that the temple described in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 is literal is just the way it's described and the excessive detail that's given to it about its measurements and dimensions and this many cubits that and this many cubits that and the detail of the description. If it was just a symbolic temple, I, I... I don't get at all, then, the value of all the detail in it. But seeing that it is a literal temple that will be on the earth in the millennium, that uh, not only fits with the context and the flow of the book of Ezekiel, but I think it also makes sense as, as to how it's described in the book of Ezekiel. Thank you for that question there, Barbara. Um, Terry asks, are Adam and Eve in heaven? Okay, Terry, let me give you a quick answer. Maybe this question should have gone in the lightning round, moderator, because I can give a quick answer. Yes, they're in heaven. I'll explain to you why. Because after their fall, Adam and Eve were, um, God clothed them with the skins of animals. And that signifies two things. First of all, he took away their covering that they made for themselves, the fig leaves that were inadequate coverings and very uncomfortable coverings as well. Um, so he took away those inadequate coverings. But then the second thing that he did was God gave them coverings. God provided a covering. And really that's the difference between all um, religion and all revelation from God. Religion is man's attempt to cover himself, to reach up to God. 
Revelation, if you want to say, is God coming down to humanity and God saying, let me cover you with a sacrifice. And that's exactly what happened. God had to sacrifice an animal for them to be covered in the skins of animals. And I believe you're going to see Adam and Eve in heaven. Thank you for that question. Okay, uh, next question comes from Pauly, who says, in Genesis chapter 30, the combination of four moms and one man seems less than a man of God lifestyle. But if Jacob had only one wife, it would have been Leah. Your thoughts on multiple wives in this case and otherwise. Okay, Pauly, um, I want to go on record right now. And Ingalil, I don't know if you're watching this, but maybe you'll ask, I'm against multiple wives. God from the beginning has determined that it should be one man with one woman and Ingalil is the one for me and that just kind of settles it. So, uh, no, look, polygamy in the Old Testament was allowed. God did not give a specific command against it until New Testament times. But as Jesus pointed out, from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 19, that from the beginning, God's intention was one man with one woman in a bond intended to last a lifetime. Uh, that was God's intention for marriage. And that should be the intention of every couple when they enter into the covenant of marriage, to be one man with one woman with the intention that it be a lifelong bond. Okay, so... Um, Every time you see a polygamous family in the Old Testament, it's a mess. And through that, God's very powerfully teaching, this was not my intention. This was not what I intended to do from the beginning. And that's what Jesus is pointing out in Matthew chapter 19, where he talks about the ideal of God, one man with one woman, uh, for life. Um, and Jesus very carefully said, from the beginning, that's how God intended it to be. Now, if he would only had one wife, been Leah, this is what, I've thought about this, Polly. What should Jacob have done when he realized that Laban deceived him and, so to speak, slipped him Leah instead of Rachel? What should he have done? Look, instead of adding Rachel as a second wife, he should have gone to Laban and say, Laban, this is on you. This marriage is annulled. This is not the woman I contracted, so to speak, to marry. So this marriage is annulled, and I'm going to marry Rachel. That's the end of the story. That, that's, that's what he should have done. And, and look, it, obviously, it's easy for me to stand back thousands of years later and completely culturally removed and say what Jacob should and shouldn't have done. But I, I think that would have matched God's ideal. And uh, if that would have happened, we're speaking, of course, completely hypothetically. But if that would have happened, I think God would have given Jacob 12 sons and one daughter through Rachel alone, if he would have done that and done what I think would have been the right thing. Uh, because look, let's face it, um, if there was ever a marriage that could have rightfully been annulled, it was Jacob's marriage, so to speak, to uh, Leah, a woman he never intended to marry. Laban, the father, pulled the old switch on him and what a deceptive man he was. But Jacob was getting his own medicine there. So that's another story altogether. Okay, uh, Barbara has a question regarding the topic question. Barbara asks this. How do we as a church respond to our denomination? 
It has made changes to its beliefs and bylaws, which we believe are contrary to biblical teaching. What should individual believers do? What should a church under a changing affiliation or organization do? Thanks. Well, Barbara, look, denominations sometimes do this. Matter of fact, it's sad to see in our present day and age. Whole denominations going off into unfaithfulness to biblical teaching. You know, one of the most dramatic and terrible examples just this year, the Church of England, and that, that's that segment of the Anglican communion that defines itself as the Church of England. The Church of England uh, openly affirmed that its priests could bless same-sex marriages, pronounce the churches and by extension, the Lord's blessing over same-sex marriages. And friends, that, that is such a denial of biblical teaching, not only regarding sexuality, but also regarding a marriage and what marriage is. As I just said, one man and one woman from the beginning, that's what God intended. Not only is that such a, a, a egregious, it's such a, a blatant disregard of biblical teaching in this regard, um, but so much of the chatter from the Church of England was, we didn't go far enough. We should go farther. I think it would be appropriate for individual congregations in the Church of England to withdraw themselves from the supervisory aspect of the Church of England and uh, organize under another communion in the Anglican communion, perhaps one of the African dioceses, which are much more faithful to biblical teaching. And that same dynamic, I think, can play out uh, as denominations bend to worldly influences and worldly causes. Uh, they can and they should be rightly departed from. And so, Barbara, I, I, think, um, I think ideally, okay, ideally denominations would not be doing this. They would not be selling out to the world in this way. Uh, but if they do, then ideally after that, the second ideal would be individual congregations would withdraw from that denomination. There would be pastors and elders and leaders at the church that would say, no, our denominational hierarchy has done this, but it's not right. We're going to withdraw from that. That would be a second ideal. The third ideal would be failing those first two things is that the individual believer would say, I can't be part of a church that's part of a denomination that openly uh, denies the Lord and his teaching. On these critical points, look, there's no individual church, there's no individual denomination that's perfect. Every one of them has its flaws. We understand that. We're not asking for perfection, but especially for the places where the culture is pushing back hard on the church and the culture wants the church to bend to its will, the church has to stand strong and be unbent, unbroken. Hope that's helpful for you there, um, Barbara. Next question comes from Lynn. She's asking, uh, does Isaiah 43 apply to us even though it was written to Israel? Um, here's Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
Um, Lynn, I would say absolutely the principles of Isaiah chapter 43 apply to the believer under the new covenant. If those promises applied to the believer under the old covenant, which obviously they do, I mean, Isaiah chapter 43 is speaking to Israel, to the people of God, uh, genetic Israel, the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's speaking to them, you know, sort of covenant participants in that old covenant, the covenant of Moses, the covenant made at Mount Sinai. And if God says, um, listen, I'm speaking to this way, I'm making these promises, then those same promises in principle apply to believers under the new covenant. I mean, if you just look at the first couple of verses of Isaiah 43, this is what the Lord, he who created you, has the Lord created you? He who formed you, uh, I have redeemed you, if you were among the redeemed of the Lord, uh, who, who have been summoned, who belong to the Lord, if the Lord can look at you and say, you are mine, then the promises of when great difficulty comes, because that's what passing through the waters is a, is a picture of there. It's just great difficulty, great trial coming upon the life of the believer or the, the people of God as a whole. And so, no, this is, a, this is very much applicable. You see, we can understand that these things were spoken to God's people as they existed under the old covenant. We get that. But by application, we as believers rejoice that God is not less generous to his people. He's not, le- God did not close his hand with the new covenant after having an open hand with the old covenant. It doesn't work like that. If anything, God's hand is more open to his people under the new covenant. By the way, I, here in Sweden, I don't know if you can tell, but it's getting darker. It's uh, almost 10 o'clock at night, quarter to 10. Uh, I love being here. It's a great, beautiful afternoon. I guess they had rain this morning, but that was before we came in on an airplane. All right, last call here. In about five minutes, we're going to cut off our entry. Uh, Let us know your first name. Let us know where you're viewing from. Uh, Country or city is is plenty. State, whatever, uh, province. Uh, Let us know where you're viewing from, and we're going to take everybody who submits their first name and their, uh, or screen name, I guess is fine, and their location, where they're viewing from. We're gonna enter you in a random generator. We're gonna pick out three names and send them an Enduring Word mug. This is our giveaway for today. And why are we doing a giveaway? We're doing a giveaway to celebrate that I'm done with all the work for that Enduring Word study Bible. Uh, Look, it's been about 10 days or so that I finished and made my last submission. But man, I'm still praising the Lord that I'm finished with all that work. That was a lot of work. Almost 800,000 words that I had to submit. And I did the work over a period of about nine months and we took visits to about 10 different countries during those nine months that I was gone. But oh, what a blessing that was. And I hope that God uses it. The Enduring Word Study Bible will not be available in publication for more than a year. Uh, But hey, this is to celebrate me finishing the submission. So put your thing in. It's going to be just a few uh, more minutes uh, that we do this. We're going to close it off at about 10 till, and then we'll randomly generate that. And, and listen, you have to hang on till the end, because if you're not here at the end, you're not going to hear if we call your name, and you're not going to be able to tell us if, um, you know, you're not going to be able to hear from us that you want, so you can get us your 
uh, contact information so that we can mail you the mug. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, let me get through some quick questions here. Oh my goodness. Oh, the moderator's really taking it to me here in this lightning round. All right, first I got to get, before I start lightning round, another question from Tony who says, can you explain the practice of blessing the firstborn in the Old Testament? Was it only man-made or was it ever demanded by God? Well, no, Tony, um, I'm not going to say that it was demanded by God, but it was just a very logical outworking of what God commanded. God commanded a blessing that would pass from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to their children. And uh, they just simply had to discern from the Lord, Lord, does this pass on to all my children or to a specific child? With the case of Abraham, it was Isaac that the blessing went to and not to Ishmael uh, or any of Abraham's other sons through Keturah, his second wife. Uh, With Isaac, it went through Jacob and not Esau. But with Jacob, it went through all 12 of his sons. They all were inheritors of the covenant. And so that idea of passing on this blessing to the firstborn, I just think it's a very... um, Natural, it was one of those things that was both very much used by God, yet at the same time a cultural practice. Hope that's helpful for you there. All right, lightning round. Better take a drink of water first. Okay, I'm going to do a few questions the lightning round, then we're going to cut off our thing. We'll get back to it. But let me, let me go here. First of all, lightning round. Rhonda, is it safe for me to upgrade the Blue Letter Bible app? Absolutely Rhonda, um, the Blue Letter Bible app, it's a great team of people and they do a great job with it. But Rhonda, I also want you to know, we have an outstanding Enduring Word app. Go to your app store. Enduring Word app is absolutely free. And let me tell you, our developer team, Paul and Diana, they do an amazing, amazing work managing and developing and updating. We're introducing some thrilling updates to our app. Uh, both for your Android device or your uh, Apple device, your iOS device. So, Rhonda, you're safe updating the Blue Letter Bible app, but the Enduring Word app is a great way to get the resources to get from Enduring Word. Uh, Gabriel, I'll just summarize your name of that, asks, I've heard that the Neronian persecution was a myth. What do you think? Um, Gabriel, I think you have pretty conclusive early church evidence. I'd like to see the evidence that it was a myth, but you have some early Christian writers that refer to it with some degree of specificity, and it even seems that Paul was caught up. Most people believe that Paul's martyrdom happened during the Neronian persecution, so I think it was valid. Um, Listen, sometimes some of these stories of specific persecutions get exaggerated. You know, that can happen. Uh, It's said that during the Neronian persecution that he coded Christians with tar or asphalt and lit them as torches in his gardens. Is it possible that that's an exaggeration? Maybe, but um, I don't think it's an exaggeration that the persecution happened. Okay, next question from Glory, who asked David, why would God create the dinosaurs and then have them be extinct? Um, Glory, look, I'm no biologist, but it's from my understanding that, that thousands of species over the centuries have become extinct. Um, it's just not God's will for every species to last forever on this earth. And so species um, have perished. And uh, it isn't just true. Well, that question having to do with the dinosaurs is relevant to a lot of species that are ex- extinct. 
And listen, I know that there have been some animal species that have become extinct because of the practices of man, but there's many more animal species that have become extinct just because of that's the way that if you want to say nature, if you want to personify nature and uh, biology and all the rest have worked. So listen, that's that's just how God works. God never created an animal kingdom that would, uh, the individual pieces of it would last forever. Okay, one more question, then I'm going to call an end to our contest and we'll get the, the results in. Uh, Barry asks, when teaching children about being a disciple, how would you explain the concept of taking up your cross? Barry, uh, I, I would be careful about explaining the concept of dying to self, taking up the cross. I, I don't know how much a child can understand of that, but the, the whole idea of denying yourself, I, I think that that's something that children can understand. Not putting me first, but putting others first, putting God first. I, I think that that is a good way to, to deny yourself. Because really in the phrasing that Jesus used that, take up your cross, deny yourself, th- those are given sort of a synonymous equivalence there. Okay, I'm going to pause in the middle of our lightning round. Friends, we're calling an end right now to our contest. That's it. No more entries. I now commission the Enduring Word team to run the random generator and see who is uh, coming up and see what's happening for the, uh, uh, who's going to get the mugs. So, all right, ready? They'll get news back to me. Hang on, and we're going to see who wins the three Enduring Word mugs that we're giving away. Back to the lightning round. Uh, Shailene asks, hi, from Vermont, USA. I was raised in a Christian household as a teenager. I left the church and started to do my own thing. I gave my life to Christ again in the 20s. Question, did I stop being God's child? Okay, Shailene, I'm going to say that it's impossible for me to say with authority. I mean, some of these things are things that God or the individual only knows. But from how you describe your situation, I would say no. You were genuinely converted as a child, as a teenager, uh, and then you went off and did your thing. But the reality of your conversion was demonstrated by the fact that you came back. I, I think that demonstrated the reality of your conversion. Um, the reality of somebody's conversion isn't demonstrated that they never waver, that they never drift away, but more by the fact that they come back. Uh, this understanding is sometimes talk about the, uh, the, the perseverance of the saints. So I hope that's helpful for you there. I, I, I would be inclined to say that you were converted as a child. Okay, uh, going on here, Heather asked the question, is it okay for both pastors of a church to go away at the same time when the church is young? Okay, Heather, um, okay, good question. But Heather, there's a lot more I'd wanna know about the situation before I gave a categorical yes or no. Look, um, it's up to a pastor or the pastors of a church, the leadership of a church, to be building strength, to be building maturity in the congregation as a whole. And if some of that means challenging some people in the congregation to step up and take leadership roles, sometimes in their absence, that can definitely be a part of it. So maybe if I knew more details about the specific situation, I would give more of a, of a negative view of it. But in general, I'm, I'm positive of the fact of pushing ministry down as much as possible. That, that a big job of pastors and leaders in the church is to raise up other people to do the work of the ministry. And sometimes that best happens in, hey, can you fill in for me in this pinch? I'm going to be out of town. Can you fill in for me? 
and there's other dynamics about it. Um, is it uh, for both pastors to be away? Is it a thing of necessity? Maybe it's a thing of necessity. You know, there can just be obligations that nobody really wanted it this way in their calendar. And maybe somebody to say, well, it's not ideal, but it's just what we have to do for the moment. So that, that would be my general take on that. Uh, Jesper. Hey, Jesper. I'll see you next week. I imagine. Hey, son. Okay. Uh, hi, David. How is a Bible study different compared with a Sunday sermon? Um, Jesper. Uh, okay. There's no strict difference. Um, some Bible studies are more like sermons. Some sermons are more like Bible studies. But what, what we normally think of is that in a Bible study, there's more of an analyzing of the text. In a sermon, there's often more of a element to persuade. That's often not so present in what we might think of as a Bible study. A good Bible study can have that too, believe you me. But in general, I think we're talking about the persuasive, perhaps the applicational aspect. The, the, the sermon has more application, more persuasion as a part of it. But again, there's a big area of overlap between the two. But in general, that's how I would describe the two. Shell asks this question. How do I explain who created the earth, the world. Should I say only the Father or only Jesus or all through the Trinity? By the way, I'm learning so much through enduring word. Shell, great question. I would just say this, that um, it happened through the triune God. You can go through the scriptures and I don't have them at my hand right now, but there's places where it speaks about the uh, uh, act of God, the Father in creation, the act of God, the Son in creation, and the work of the Holy Spirit in creation. So all three of them were active. I would say that creation was the work of the one God who's in three persons. Uh, one God in three persons. That's what we believe in the Christian world. We believe in the Trinity. And so that one God in three persons, that's really where we're at with that. So it really was the work of the Father, Son, of Holy, and the Holy Spirit all combined uh, working in the Godhead. Okay, we've got a bonus round going on Okay, here we go. We got some winners. Here we go. Winner number one. Okay, we got our winners. Hold on for me. I'm going to answer two more questions from the bonus round. Then I'm going to give you the winners. I'm going to torture you just a little bit. Two quick bonus round questions. Josh asks, it appears that for three months, Moses had no name until being found by Pharaoh's daughter. Do you think there's any significance to this? Um, no, other than... Um, his parents left his identity up to God. Let's just say that. That's a quick thing that occurs to my mind. His parents left his identity up to God, and they trusted that God would give him an identity and a person with that. Uh, that would be the thing I would draw from that, Josh. And then finally, the question from Char, will I be able to pre-order your study Bible at some point? Will it be a New King James Version? Char, yes, it will be a New King James Version, uh, at least initially. I don't know if they're going to do it in other translations later on. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, probably depends on how it sells. Uh, but yes, you'll be able to pre-order it, but not for quite a while. It's not going to be out for more than a year. Uh, so keep posted. We'll keep talking about it. All right. Are we ready for our winners? Here's our winner. We don't have a drum roll. Here we go. Okay. Our three winners are Linda Rousel from Muskegon, Michigan. Thank you, Linda. Linda, contact us through the chat. 
in the chat, give a your email address or send an email to ewm at enduringword.com and we need your postal address. Linda Rousel, you win one of our Enduring Word mugs. Winner number two is Barbara Kurtz from Meadville, Pennsylvania. Congratulations, Barbara. Again, give us your contact information or send it to ewm at enduringword.com. And then the final winner, winner number three, is Rhonda Talkington from Arizona. Congratulations to our viewers in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Arizona. Hey, look, I'm a little bit sad that none of our European or Asian viewers or African viewers won at this time. But look, it's all done by random. We're on the up and up on this. This is with the random generator. Uh, Linda, Barbara, and Rhonda, you guys win. Please submit us your contact information, a way for us to get in contact with you. Uh, and then we'll get your postal address and send it. Congratulations. I think that just went up in the live chat so you guys can see your names and you know how to contact us and to get a hold of us. Hey, I hope we do more and more of these giveaways just because, um, hey, we're grateful for you, Enduring Word audience. We're grateful for the fellowship, for the friendship that we have over these. And I love talking about the Bible. So congratulations to our winners. Thank you for everybody who was a part of this today. And I hope we do more and more giveaways in the future. It's kind of fun to be able to give stuff away. Look, that's kind of the whole story of my ministry. Uh, my reach with the Bible commentary I have is really because I give it away. If I was trying to sell it or charge or any kind of gate fee, it just wouldn't work. But uh, I've enjoyed some success in ministry by giving things away. Charging, not so much, but we love to freely give. And so again, Linda, Barbara, Rhonda, congratulations. That's your Enduring Word mug. Next week, I'm gonna come to you again from Sweden, but God willing, and if I live, from the conference that I've come here to Sweden to attend. We haven't come only to visit my mother and father-in-law and other family that's here on the west coast of Sweden, though we look forward to that a great deal, but also to attend a conference of many Calvary Chapel churches across Scandinavia. Look forward to this every year, and next year, next week, uh, the intention is for me to do this live from the conference. So God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, winners, if you're still in the chat, please let us know. Uh, again, if you don't get in touch with us, we can't send you the mug. Please understand this. Linda, Barbara, Rhonda, if you don't get in touch with us, we don't have a postal address to send your uh, winnings to, and we'd really love to see you take this back. So God bless you all from the west coast of Sweden. So glad that you could join us today, and thanks for the whole Enduring Word team for making such a great time for the Q&A. God bless you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.